When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Hello, so our Skeleton Service podcast continues with the third episode of the Sunderland Sardine Watchalongs as part of our lockdown series. I really can't wait until it's FPL again. I'm joined by Nick and Stag, of course. Nick, you all right? Hey, mate. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Uh, Another week in lockdown. It's my son's second birthday, so we had a a party at home we enjoyed this cake and pizza at least but yeah shame we couldn't have the party that we originally organized um just to say who we are we are who got the assist twitter um it's at wgg underscore fpl for tom at wgg underscore nick or at fpl stag for anthony and we're also on instagram wgta.fpl so make sure to give us a follow on there as well so um what's on the pod this week Evening lads, uh, good to be back again, another week in lockdown done here in Belgium. So just like the last few weeks, what we're going to first start off with is a quick news round where we're looking mostly at the stories which regard the return of football, but we'll also, of course, briefly discuss the Newcastle takeover. And then we move on to the Sunderland Till I Die watch through, where we're looking at episode three, Pride, Passion and Loyalty, which is the Charlie Methvin episode, uh, which simmers to a boil for the Boxing Day or Stevens Day, if you're from Ireland, clash with Bradford City so it's a pretty interesting episode lots of talking points it'll be a good discussion yeah certainly let's start off with the news uh, so as we trundle on through lockdown uh, I think we're in the, in the thick of it now uh, it sounds like the peak has gone in the UK etc etc uh, football terms uh, the Premier League has committed uh, after a bit of toing and throwing it seemed like there was an Ornstein article last week I believe when the, there was kind of some mounting resistance to the clubs maybe completing the season um, the Premier League this week said that they were committed to complete the season um, and UEFA also stuck their oar in very helpfully um, they urged the to finish by the 31st of July to allow their competitions to be done in August. So like some sort of, I don't know, like a mini tournament sort of thing for clubs, you know, like in the Parivo tournament mode, um, which means there's a potential pre-season starting very early on in May, uh, a 13th of June start, which allows seven weeks to complete the season, which should be fairly comfortable, actually. Most clubs have got nine to ten games left and clubs were protesting. They need at least two weeks to regain some fitness. But hmm, so, I mean, could we see once the clubs do start going back to training, I guess that would be football on the horizon, wouldn't it? I mean, we talked about bubbles quite a lot last week. Uh, I think we probably said it about eight or nine times, didn't we, Anthony? But like, do we think that that would mean football is on the horizon then? I think it's all a little bit optimistic, personally, if you just watch the fears and you look at the issues even with holding games indoors and there's an awful lot of financial issues that haven't been ironed out yet. It all just seems a little bit too close for me. Uh, yeah, I mean, I probably still agree with you as well. Uh, so we're talking about 20 days from now until the 11th of May and you know, we've seen supposedly the likes of Italy have always been two weeks ahead of us in terms of the sort of the COVID numbers, and and they're still you know, you know, having lots of hospital, um, people going to hospital all the time. I think I think it's optimistic as well. Without labouring the point, three weeks time we might still only be doing very phased um, lockdown removals, and uh, to kind of bring all the footballers back into business in, with pre-season seems um, slightly ambitious in my eyes. Yeah, like the, the thing is that none of us could bet that we would be in our offices on May 11th anywhere near comfortably. So just how we can expect for like the sporting integrity of the Premier League to be in place by the 13th of June with players fit and not, all, you know, the risk of someone getting sick and it just messing up squads and everything that goes with it. It just it doesn't add up to me. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be an interesting spectacle, won't it? If you've got all the players, for example, on the pitch wearing masks. Like, for example, Alphonse Davis, he signed a new contract with Bayern Munich uh, just this week and he was wearing a mask and they were wearing a mask and it got tagged as the mask winger, uh, which I thought was quite funny. And uh, you've got the prospects. I think it's like 500 people are still going to be involved in some capacity if the game is behind closed doors. So that's still an awful lot of risk to take on, as we spoke about last week. Uh, but yeah, it just seems like the way it's going to go is we do the domestic seasons first and do the continental competitions afterwards. And uh, yeah, I guess the 
the Scottish League as well, there's been a bit of a development as well this evening, hasn't there, Anthony? Yeah, there has indeed. So I, like we were saying last week when we were discussing the what was happening with the Belgian League, and at the time UEFA were coming out strongly against the Belgian League's decision to just finish up as it was. Now, in the meantime, the Dutch government have taken a decision to ban large public events up until September 1st. In Scotland, they've been looking to end the Premiership season there as well. And now it seems like those leagues at least of those three are going to get the green light from UEFA to finish up their seasons as they are now UEFA are trying to limit this sort of thing to special cases but effectively it comes down to if governments are banning public gatherings then they're just going to allow the leagues to finish up themselves so a real softening in UEFA's position from where it was a few weeks ago where every effort had to be made to complete a domestic season Certainly. Not going to talk about the palaver in Scotland, but if you want to laugh, I definitely recommend looking that up. Uh, speaking of a laugh, uh, Goal.com, they reported that FC Mitterland, who Anthony uh, mentioned last week as clubs owned by the guy he'd like to be, uh, they're planning drive-ins uh, for their fans to enjoy the football. Um, so drive up to the stadium and watch it on the big screen. Can't imagine that working in London. And uh, finally this week, the big news that's over everywhere is Newcastle, uh, the takeover, uh, which is, uh, you know, we've all drawn lots on our little slack for uh, uh, you know, bingo, a uh, players and managers being connected we've already had Poch we've already had uh, Allegri uh, but it looks like Steve Bruce is going to be kept in and it looks like it's basically done in all but name so quite a slick process there by the uh, well by Staveley and the Saudi uh, investment fund which is a bit of an interesting addition to the cast of characters in the owner's gallery um, Nick what do you reckon to this I think it's probably gonna be a bit of a sticky situation isn't it going forward I think it is interesting. Obviously, it's a, it's another Middle Eastern um, country investing into the Premier League. We previously had obviously the, the UAE and oil money um, investing in Manchester City, and it's now Saudi Arabia that have invested in Newcastle United, and it's it's another country with, with a very bad uh, sort of human rights track record as well. So I'm not sure really how I would feel if I was a, a Newcastle fan. If you previously had Mike Ashley um, in charge of the club so you've been used to having a sort of a disreputable figure in in charge and running things you know obviously he's very poorly respected for how he treats his sports direct employees for instance and just his the way he's managed the club has you know made fans furious for you know a good part 10 years or whatever it's been so to see um you know i think if i was a newcastle united fan i'd probably be like you know i'm not really sure how to make of it at all you know i guess you'll be happy that it's a good sign. It's a promising sign, obviously, that the club will, you know, um, start to compete um, properly in the Premier League potentially um, with this money that's invested. Though, of course, um, if you're comparing it to Manchester City, Manchester City were able to invest heavily in the club before sort of FFP rules came into play. So it might be a bit more of a challenge for Newcastle United in terms of how they invest in the playing squad, or or they might just flout the rules completely. We, we don't know, but um, yeah, I think it's definitely um, definitely interesting to see how this um, story develops. So I've seen the Newcastle fans that are sticking Saudi Arabian flags into their Twitter bios and they're kind of just generally saying that anything is better than having Ashley in charge. But I'm not sure you can tally and justify getting rid of a guy who brought in zero hour contracts and accepting instead a regime that has carried out dozens of executions in a single day in just recent years. I'm not sure that uh, ethically speaking that Newcastle fans should exactly be delighted with this. It's levels, isn't it, really? Um, on one level, I can understand why people are like, oh, it's great to see the back of Mike Ashley, as Nick says, but equating him to what is coming in, um, you know, the word sports washing that comes to my mind when I look at that kind of takeover, uh, it kind of feels like it's one of those which is um, a bit troubling if you look below the surface. I'm not going to say any more, but there's a great article, a great uh, cartoon, actually, I should say, by David Squires this week that you really should look up and really should read if you are on the fence about how to feel about this one because, uh, yeah, it's it's not the best situation, I don't think. But, hey. And yeah, to add to Tom's, David Squires' cartoon recommendation, which is very good. Um, also, Miguel Delaney has a very good piece in The Independent, which kind of spells it out in a bit more detail what Squires gets into in his um, a very black and white uh, comic, just getting at the raw facts of what's going on in that country so speaking of the northeast uh, let's move on to the episode of Sunderland Star Dive this week which is uh, pride passion and loyalty who got the assist who got the assist 
So, uh, it's uh, season two, episode three, midway through a Sunderland Sly Die uh, season two. And it's a, it's a fair long episode. So, last week, uh, the old fashioned way was only half an hour. This one's a 45 minuter. So, a fair bit to unpack. And, you know, the timeline begins for this particular episode with, with remembrance. So, there's a Sunderland fan, you know, counting his medals, talking about them. There's a parade. And it bridges into Sunderland, you know, and how the collective spirit of unity has replaced serving for this guy. There's a shared joy as a goal scored. And he says, I see pride passion and loyalty that leads to the opening credits on the river where used to build the boats. the episode opens it's late november there's christmas trees and festive song everywhere Maja, Maja. i was calling him marja last week but i think that's probably a bit like my salah stuff from last year so uh, my josh Maja is in the community and he's saying i'll be here next year he's lighting the christmas tree and he's also he also says you know the new contract's on its way i think he's overheard saying that to a fan but there's a kind of portentous overlay. Stuart Donald says this. The very visible elephant in the corner of the room is still Josh Madger and the contract yeah. and that sort of thing, because the whole thing changes if Josh Madger leaves the club, which is still a possibility. So, yeah, um, you know, there's a scene there and there's also a scene with Jack Ross saying how he wants to keep him and how he'd love him to stay. But his job is to fit the situation um, if Madger does leave. And I guess the question here is, who do we sympathise with more? Is it with the player or is it with the manager? Because you know, the player, the player's got what we talked about last week. He's got to really look at bettering himself. Uh, but equally, the manager's got a really tough decision and a really tough rebuild on his hands because Madger did contribute so much to that first half of the season for Sunderland, right? Yeah, I, I don't think that sympathy for the player and manager are mutually exclusive. I, I think that you know maybe it gets a little bit more difficult when you start to talk about the agent like we were last week. But you can see how Josh Madger just needs to kind of keep the crowd on side. There's absolutely no point turning on them and you know giving an answer other than you know the contract is on its way and yeah yeah I'll be here next year of course I love lighting the Christmas lights in Sunderland and of course the manager he's quite pragmatic about it that he fears he's leaving but he needs his job at the end of the day is to find a solution and I guess that's kind of foreshadowing for the the solution that they try to find down the line with that but look Maja as he notes himself like look there's noise and tension going on around him but that's just what happens when big things are happening so I don't think that you could really judge him for that yeah, he says to the people that he just wants to focus on his football and stay in his lane. That's kind of the message he's portraying. He's, and you see it later on when he's trying to say that it's, it's all down to his agent. He's he's happy, whatever. He just you know he's focusing on his football, enjoying his football, playing his football. And when he's you know meeting the, when he's meeting the fans um, for the Christmas lights, you know every question he gets is about whether he's going to stay or not. And and to be fair to him, even though he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll stay, I'll stay. And, essentially he's probably lying it's kind of a white lie really because it's not really the right moment it's not the right time to kind of be dropping any bombshells with some random fans who are just wanting to you know they're, they're all looking for reassurance because this guy has been their best player he scored 10 plus goals already at this point so it's kind of I kind of sympathise for him and obviously for the manager I think I sympathise probably more for the manager than the player to be honest just because you know the player has, you know, he, he's got plenty of decisions he can make. He's in control. It's his situation. He has the decision to make and he can do whatever he wants. The manager is out of his control. If the player leaves, he's going to have to adapt and he's going to struggle without this key player. Um, so it's out of the manager's hands, really. I think I don't think it's anything to do with Jack Ross at all, whether Josh Madger stays or not. You know, they seem to get on just fine and he's playing very well. So obviously it is working for him at the club with the current regime and the current manager. So it's not really the manager's fault if he if he does leave. It's about money, ultimately, and his future career. So I, I'd probably sympathise more with the manager over the player. Yeah, I think I do sympathise. I do sympathise a lot with Jack Ross. I think you know he he's got to know what he's signing up for. If he's signing for a club like Sunderland, that if you do have a player like that, you're going to hope that you go up and have the staying power to keep a player like that with you. But if you ultimately can't convince a player to stay, and someone like you know a league and club, for example, comes calling, you can understand why a manager decides to go. At least why his head was turned. And something that's worth noting here is obviously we watch these episodes a week apart. But for a lot of people, they'd have binged from episode two to episode three. And if you watch that, the end of the last one, he was you know, made to look so dodgy. And the start of this one, wow, he looks bad. Like he looks really, really bad because he's basically just lying to the camera. Now he's like looking, he looks like he's just lying to the population. But as Nick said, like, 
I think he's in a bit of a no-win situation here. Like, he can't exactly say, yeah, actually, I am leaving. Sorry, sorry, love, I'm popping off. Um, and equally, he can't kind of say, I'm definitely going to be staying, as he said. Like, oh, it is tough, and it is, it's, it's very difficult with a guy who's got you know that, that level of spotlight on him. And I just feel sorry for him, basically, because no matter which way he turned, no matter which way he was, like someone's always going to be able to have a pop at him, like we have, I suppose, to some extent. But, but credit to him, he didn't take the easy option. He went out into the community and he took those questions because he knew no matter what he did, he was going to get them. But he still did the Christmas lights. You know, he wouldn't be the first player in a million years to cancel a public engagement because it would have been it was the easier option to do that. And, I, you know, he's a teenager. He's, he's not exactly that experienced in this sort of situation. You saw how freaked out he was by the thought of having to do some public speaking for even a second just to say, hope you enjoy your Christmas families or whatever he was going to have to say. Even that was daunting for him. and. Yeah, I've not. I, I have a lot of sympathy for for Maja in this setup. I just wonder, like, if we were Sunderland fans, like, how much the emotion would really overtake to some extent. Like, I think it'd be difficult to separate the two. And I think you would be kind of finding that you'd be a lot more harsh on Maja here and think yeah. he is a snake. Like, the, yeah, come at me with come at me with Declan Rice or Jack Grealish. <laughs> I think when, when you have club loyalties and everything, you know, these fans will live and die for Sunderland. And if this player doesn't want to live or die for him, and you know, it's basically betray it's like a betrayal, isn't it, for the fans? If the player leaves, they're not interested in the player's career or what might be best for the player, they're interested in what might be best for the club. So if, if the player ditches the club, then they're going to hate him. And, and you see that all the time. So it's not no surprise, really, that, you know, the Sunderland fans sort of ultimately hate this guy now because he, he essentially betrayed the club just as they were sort of on the up again um, and having some success in League One. Yep, 15 goals he scored um, before before departing. A few more goals in this episode, of course. After kind of Madge's walkabout and kind of a little chat there, um, we go back to Charlie, who didn't see much of in the last episode, but Stags at, at the very top. This is the uh, Charlie Methven episode, and he's saying, um, you know, he's in his office, and he's saying how Christmas is a spite for everyone's revenue, for the club's revenue in terms of sales. Um, you know, how the exiles come back to Sunderland, and you know, uh, I guess people are just looking for presents over the course of uh, the festive period. And you see him addressing his staff as well. He's talking to everyone. It's an all-hands meeting. And he reiterates this sort of uh, send balls to the inner culture uh, that he said earlier on. This has developed an absolutely bizarre business culture where there's no point in driving revenue because in the end, you just send the bill to the owner. And that kind of creates inertia. The in-house culture, it seems, is poor. And you also see the staff scoffing at him. So when he makes a reference to uh, a failed uh, slogan from the Scottish referendum, uh, you see uh, Sophie Ashcroft, who's the corporate comms manager here, um, just roll her eyes basically at him. And she doesn't seem to be particularly uh, warm towards uh, this upstart from the South. He wants to kind of change that culture and drive us and challenge us. And I think sometimes you need it, but sometimes you maybe do overstep the mark a little bit. I found it quite interesting, actually, um, when I compared it to his speech to the fans in, in the first episode versus his speech to the staff in, in this episode. He definitely seems more comfortable and more self-aware when he was addressing the fans and talking about, you know, the problems that the club had suffered um, over, you know, the, the past period and how no one cared about the money, how they were spending money. And, you know, a rich man in America was just basically paying for any, everything. So no one cared. I feel like this time round with the staff, it, it feels very, very awkward. He, and he, he seems very awkward and a bit stunted in his delivery as well. And as you said, it doesn't go down with, um, with the staff very well, um, judging by their reactions and they don't, you know, follow his jokes. And perhaps um, I think because a lot of them probably have been at the club for a number of years. So he's taken on this regime with a number of staff that have been there and, you know, have, have been there for this attitude. So he's, you know, a lot of them probably feel, you know, personally insulted by the fact that he's saying this club's been, he's essentially saying you've all done your job horrendously because you've not cared about the money. You've not followed the money. You've just been, you know, sitting there doing your jobs and things have got to change. It's been managed dreadfully. So I feel that perhaps there's a little bit of a personal insult to, to some of the staff who, who do not feel that it's been their fault and they've just been doing their job essentially. Like I might need to get you guys to cast back a little bit further in your memories than I have to go. But this scene reminds me of when a substitute teacher comes into school when you're in primary school. And, you know, the very first day that they came, they shouted at somebody and that's how they got people's attention at the st- in the first morning. And from then on, they could not get people to listen. They couldn't get people's attention. If they asked a question, they just got silence and guffaws, as we saw with the staff that time. And 
<laughs> from that point of view, it's hard to feel for him. But from the other side of it, you, you see that he's being consistent and you can tell that he's really trying to turn the ship and he isn't exactly getting the buy-in from the staff there in spite of all of his efforts. Yeah, I, I do think that in contrast to what Nick said, perhaps, I think that the tone he used was actually the same. It was just that it was received differently by the audience. Um, I think we spoke about this last week, as Nick alluded to, that internal versus external sort of thing. Um, and I think the projection of how how he projects himself is different to different people. And that's why he doesn't seem to grasp internally. Um, externally, you know, his aim is to tear things down and right wrongs. And kind of that, that that's what the audience wants to hear. But he should have really have moderated that differently for the internal audience. As Nick said, I think, it, I think they probably did feel a bit insulted and did feel a little bit like... Yeah, you know, this guy's just bulldozing into our uh, into our club and you know acting this way. And we'll talk about it a bit more later, but I think this creates the key point of tension in this episode, which is kind of Sophie Ashcroft, who seems like a bit of a kind of a vulnerable human who gets bulldozed by Charlie in this new sort of regime, and um, very much in this episode. And I think that's kind of the first rumblings of how you know, Charlie's style and which which is kind of hinted at in episode one, uh, really can rub people up the wrong way, um, which is pr- probably not surprising given what we think about him. But at the end of the day, his raison d'etre to be there is to, as she says, rock the boat, you know, and <laughs> I don't think that nec- like the staff need to understand that this is a co- this was a company that was hemorrhaging money. The culture does need to change. And whether or not his communication style is good or bad and could be better internally, at the end of the day, I think the staff need to understand that things need to change. Cool. Right. Well, let's hold that thought there because there is a little bit more to talk about later on with him. So from here, there's a little interlude, you know, another magic goal. And we see one of the kind of more sympathetic, uh, joyful characters in Something Till I Die, Luco9, um, who's singing Madge's praises. He's saying he's on him to stay. He said he himself had a poor start, but he's now coming to his stride. And uh, there's a game with uh, Barnsley. And uh, you see Luco9 scoring the fourth. You know, it's really heartening for the young lad. You see him celebrating. And uh, yeah, yeah, we just kind of think, oh, what a genuine guy. And he talks about how football um, has given him an epiphany and helped him to personally grow. You know, when I look back at it now and I talk to my family about the tough times, it just makes where I am now a little bit more special. Worth meditating here quickly on Luco Nine's role in the show, I suppose. What does he do for us here? I think that, yeah, Luco9, he's definitely a likeable character. And, and you know, he, it does, in, it's an interesting comparison, as you say, with the sort of Josh Madger, he's presented as, as the villain of the club or the villain, the playing staff. Whilst Luco9, he's kind of, you know, the, the story. And there's a lot of focus on his his story. You know, he's, he's talking about Madge telling him to stay every day. You know, um, he almost seems like, I said, in the first episode, you're starstruck by McGeady and Oviedo. He's, he's now starstruck by Madge. And, you know, he, he seems to absolutely love the guy. He talks about wanting to play in the Premier League as well. So he's got these sort of aspirations of the future, perhaps being the next 4 million or 4.5 million for us FPL heads. Uh, maybe some point in the future, I don't know, the next John Lundstrom. But uh, yeah, I, I do like him. I think he's definitely, in terms of the, sort of the characters that are within the show, he, he's one of the more likeable people that we're introduced to you know like he's he's obviously a, he's a footballer but you know he's, he's very likable footballer he's come from the bottoms of his career he talked about in the other episodes and, and now is you know genuinely happy where he is and where he's playing and, and absolutely loves Sunderland and wants to impress um, you know the managers the owners and the fans for me what Luke 9 represents is everything that Charlie and Stuart Donald are trying to create in the club so he's somebody who as he talks about himself as you know he's had a tough time in football and he's struggled with the emotion of it previously but every decision that he's making from now is to play in the Premier League and at this point things are going well he's smiling he's enjoying everything he's looks like he's on that track Uh, and I guess then as things develop he's you know he represents everything of the struggle because you can see how if he loses Madge, he's going to lose a crutch on the pitch for himself, which maybe even symbolizes where the club are kind of going when it comes to Madge and his importance. Sure, yeah. I've, I think you're probably along the right tracks with uh, with 09. That's very similar to me. Like, I just think in this episode particularly, he is the light relief. He takes us out of the office because a lot of this episode, if you take out a lot of the on-the-field stuff, is basically just guys in offices talking about what's going on with Sunderland, I think. Very sympathetic and earnest, unassuming, happy-clappy. He says, if I only get five minutes on the weekend, I can do the best I can. 
what's great about him is there's no real shade to grey, right? He's a bit like a Disney prince that you root for him no matter what, um, but it doesn't seem to be very much to him at the same time, which is which is nice. I mean, that's that's kind of what you need to break up the monotony of uh, perceived monotony, perhaps of uh, all the corporate stuff. It's a bit like kind of watching Suits and then having like a bit outside with the janitors having a laugh with the mop bucket. And with that, we go back to the office. Tony Davison, the chief commercial officer. He's talking to Charlie about how Christmas is a huge spike for them on, on the chart. And he's talking about attendance. And uh, Charlie, using a bit of business speak, the SLO is a senior laser officer, says this. We need to do some marketing around, you know, be part of League One's biggest ever crowd. Bigger than Leeds. Because of Leeds Bradford. Good point, Tony. So yeah, marketing for the biggest ever crowd around League One, trying to beat Leeds and Bradford's uh, record, as Tony suggests. Not a bad idea, huh? And I think this is a good example of, uh, of of him acting out, setting those aggressive targets and what good looks like. So I think that that kind of collaboration worked quite well with Tony there. And I think that that was quite a nice, kind of easily digestible target to set. Um, so probably the good of Charlie comes through there, despite the rest of his actions, perhaps in this episode, casting him in different light. Yeah, I think it's very interesting that, it, and you see this later on in the episode, just because of the amount of focus put on it, that this is very much Charlie's brainchild. He came up with the idea himself. He's completely owning it as the idea. And and you kind of see that in his frustrations and Stuart's frustrations um, later on in the episode that it seems like they're the one that drive, they're doing all the hard work. They're driving all the ideas, all the you know plans, all the presentations, etc. And, you know, none of the actual staff who are supposedly paid to do this job are you know, doing the same as those guys who, who are having to do all the hard work. And that kind of, I guess, brings us along with where the narrative from there goes, where, you know, he Charlie talks about how we, the club, have got the oil tanker going in the right direction. But I think you can kind of see that it is, you know, it's Charlie himself that he sees that this 40,000 is going to show that their oil tanker is going in the right direction. And that's juxtaposed with our friend Sophie Ashcroft again. And she's talking about how Charlie doesn't understand the word no and how she really doesn't think that this 40,000 benchmark that he's set is possible. We might get 38, 39, maybe 40,000. Nah, not a cat in hell's chance. No way. I guess really shows you the challenge that Methven has in turning this oil tanker. Yeah, exactly. You know, a few scenes later as well, you, we have this sort of crunch meeting, don't we? It's two weeks later, it's close to Christmas, and he's basically dressing his team down. Um, he, say, he says this. And too many times in recent weeks I've come in and I've said to Tone, where are the ideas? And he's gone, I don't know. It's your jobs to come up with these ideas, okay? And there's this kind of a stark comment as well at the end. Basically, he just, after all of the kind of the carrot of being part of things, you know, turning things around, it's your job to do this. He basically just threatens that he's going to start firing people. It'll be here and then the cost cutting will accelerate and more people lose their jobs. I guess this is a good kind of time to go really into him because you know you've got Sophie talking about redundancies she's got a young baby she's worried the staff are full feeling worried uh, Louise Wander says that he's like a Tasmanian devil with his management style dumps it all on us and but he's basically says you know we can't afford any passengers we're losing a lot of money um, and it I don't know, it, it, it just seems like an interesting way to handle the situation, to keep bashing them. It kind of feels like he, he was bashing them a few weeks ago before they started this initiative. But two weeks later, he's still using the same message and still using the same tactic. If he feels like he's got to keep doing it and he's still not getting the ideas that he's asking for, you've got to wonder, could he have handled it differently? I mean, would you guys have handled this uh, differently? Yeah, even from the word go in that, let's catch up before you slink off home. It gave off the completely the wrong impression about, you know, these, he doesn't see these people as even working hard enough. The fact that he just says slink. I know it's, it's a choice of words, but I thought it said so much about kind of how he felt towards them, as he, especially as that meeting kind of developed from there. It's very much talking at them. He doesn't want any passengers. The, the club is losing too much money. But you can understand it at the same time because you can see that there is a lack of ideas there. Yeah, there's certainly a, a lot of antagonism in the room and, and it's, it's another standoff similar to the, the meeting um, when he was doing his presentation earlier on in the episode. It, it's certainly uncomfortable, but it, it seems that Charlie's, you know, he's approaching in this way because he, he wants to he wants to push people as hard as possible. As he said, if there's a few tears, then tough, you know. He doesn't care if these people are, are getting upset. They're his staff. They're getting paid as far as he's concerned. 
and he's got to deliver, you know, he's got a massive job on his hands. He's got to change the whole company and club culture. So as far as he views it, this is a marketing enterprise. They need to work as hard as possible to get this delivered. And he, he sets a very ambitious target. He's come up with a target. And yeah, um, if, if there are redundancies, if people aren't up, up to the job, then they'll go. And, that, and that's his approach. He, you know, as I said, you know, a lot of CEOs and stuff have been very successful because of their lack of empathy and lack of human emotion. And you see that certainly with Charlie to a certain extent, he, he does lack empathy with his staff. He's not there to be their friends. He's there to get them to work for him. So that's just his approach. And, and you see it a lot in business, to be honest. So it's just quite a typical behavior. <laughs> Certainly, I think maybe there's a good contrast with Martin Bain last year and the nicely, nicely approach that he was perhaps uh, orchestrating is completely contrasted with how Charlie does things. As Nick said, you know, he said, you know, if you put pressure on people in marketing, you begin to see what they're made of. And this sort of a message that he's getting, this sort of impression that he's got, he also appears to be reflecting to Stuart Donald, who we see for the first time in the episode 25 minutes in. And he reiterates the line from Charlie that, you know, typical, this is just typical Sunderland. And, you know, people just, you know, as he says, just, just having meetings and meetings about doing nothing in particular. This is typical Sunderland. Three people get together, the three of them have a meeting for however long, and come out of the meeting having agreed nothing to have another meeting. And the leadership team, they say that, you know, basically it's down to them, they need to solve it. You know, Charlie alleges that everyone's leaving at 4.59 and it's, you know, it's, it's one of those sort of cultures. But, I mean, Tony says something, doesn't he, Nick? And uh, it doesn't really, the defence does not really come across very well, does it? No, um, I, I did find that Tony's defence of his staff was was particularly weak. Um, just in terms of its delivery, you could tell that he wanted to try and make a make an effort to to try and defend them. But I think um, we saw it actually early in the episode when when they got asked, you know, um, Tone, where are the ideas? This was Charlie talking to Cameron. He said, "I don't know." So you know, previously he's spoken to Tone, and there were no ideas coming out the team. So it's potentially. Tones. I don't know if they recruited Tone himself or he was part of the legacy staff, but it seems. I think like it was in the first. I think it was in the meeting on episode one. Was he? Yeah, because it almost feels like you know he's he's essentially trying to defend the staff, but he's not really putting too much effort into it. It's almost like just paying a little bit of lip service. Well, I'm here to defend the staff, but ultimately, you can tell from um, Stuart and and Charlie's, you know, behaviours and mannerisms and, and what they're saying is. That, as Stuart says, it's a culture at the crossroads, come with us or don't. They're, they're looking at these staff. They want to get rid of them as quickly as possible. And, and Tony's not going to mount too much of a defence if that's going to happen. That's pretty clear from um, that conversation. Like at, at the end of the day, aside from growing revenue, though, this management team are looking to cut costs and they are trying to get rid of staff members who aren't coming along with them. And so if this kind of stretch goal for this seemingly large sale of 40k tickets for that boxing day game is the sort of task that is a going to bring revenue would be also going to let them streamline for going forward I, I i think it totally makes sense and whether you really dig into his like look charlie's communication style is difficult but there comes a point where the staff need to kind of pull up their socks and see just the way things are going and they need to be able to adapt to that and if they're not able to adapt to it it's probably not the place for them anymore yeah, certainly. And I think, you know, meetings of meetings and so on and so forth. I think uh, we've all worked in places like that. So, uh, yeah, it kind of does, uh, it, it can happen, especially if things are a little bit, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A little bit stayed. Um, and I guess that they're trying this kind of shock therapy and we'll, we'll see, I guess, later on if it does actually work. But back to the pitch, uh, Stuart Donald celebrates as Madger scores again. And the co-commentator says, you know, they should give Madger what he wants. This is quickly dispelled. This morning from our sources we were told that Josh Madja, whose contract is up at the end of the season at Sunderland, will not be signing the contract extension. What's quite interesting there about how they flick to Josh Maja is that it, it really ties in with what Stuart Donald had been talking about is how the club is at a crossroads and that where you have some staff that don't want to come with you, you need to get rid of them because they'll ruin all the others is what Stuart said. And then yet then we have the contract rebel, Josh Maja, who is effectively carrying the club along and that they want to hold on to if they can at all possible do so. I just think it's an interesting kind of ploy by the directors there 
to give us an idea of you know the difference between the value placed on playing staff and the non-playing staff and maybe their influence on the club and how you know no matter what Maja does if he's delivering it doesn't matter whereas for the other staff you know if their humor isn't good maybe they're more at risk do you mean there's one rule for the players another rule for the kind of the office stuff I'm, I'm getting at that i'm trying to simultaneously make that that point but also the fact that like just as a director's ploy it's just like you're talking about staff won't come with you and yet at the same time then you've got major who won't come with them as well well i feel like that's that's almost the theme of the episode isn't it Dis- disruptive staff both non-playing and playing and to be honest i i feel like almost i i, di- I disagree with you almost and i feel like with Stuart, he he's created one rule for both and he should have two separate rules he should be treating the footballers if they're disruptive, he should be, you know, still still doing everything he can to keep them and keep them playing for the squad. But obviously, you know, they, they get rid of him when they could have kept him on until the end of the summer. But, you know, when Stuart's talking about the dis- disruptions and the disruptive players and disruptive people and how you've got to get rid of them, you know, he's talking about Madja there as well, when perhaps he should be thinking, actually, Madja may be disruptive, but I should be, you know, I, I'm, I, have, to de- I have to deal with this guy and, and keep him because... He may be disrupting, he may be causing problems, but it's obviously not impacting the, what's happening on the pitch because they're winning and he's scoring. So clearly not, clearly not that disruptive. Well, they do let him go, don't they, for a nominal fee uh, in the end. Uh, spoilers mm. for next week. Um, but I mean, th- there's definitely something in what you're saying there, Nick, in that one, him staying for another six months and leaving on the free is probably, if he, was score- if he was to score the goals to keep them, to get them up, a lot better than the chain of events that we're going to see unfold before us involving a man on fire. Um, so, yeah, I think yeah, maybe there was a footballing decision um, and versus a business decision. And where it made sense from a business perspective, and you, know, you do always hear man just saying that if a player doesn't want to play for me, he's on his bike. But in this particular instance, in this scenario, where you've got a club that really needed that one guy who's been scoring the goals, and um, with him going, it definitely does uh, set up a bit of an issue for them. Yeah, it's it's it kind of. I wasn't trying to get at that. That yeah, I, I would agree with that. That Stewart should have had two different things. But it goes back to that. You know, Ronaldo's final season at Man United so isn't the the legendary thing is that it they have a negotiation with Ferguson and agree to do one final year just you know for the boss. And there is kind of that pragmatism you need to bring, especially to football staff. That as you say, Nick Stewart Arnold possibly doesn't here and maybe brings a, a dogma about bad influences and takes it too far yeah i mean he say he says that in the car doesn't he that it's, it's just the judgment call uh whether they cut loose and after christmas day in Slew, we're there we're at that big boxing day uh versus bradford with the aim for the record crowd charlie's having a pint outside so it's going to be very close whether they can get there and a bit later on, he's meeting the fans. He was kind of quite happy. And um, he says, in the end, it's all about having the right staff. But ultimately, there's some people who will have to move on. And the camera lingers just a little bit too long on Sophie Ashcroft. Uh, just a split second. But sadly, I knew it was coming then. I saw that. Um, but yeah, you know, the stadium's full. It's quite an entertaining scene. You talk about changing the culture. It's like pushing a boulder over the hill. But he's also, you know, supposedly giving these sort of menial jobs to uh, to Sophie. It's worth calling out that she, she sent to, to fetch him a beer. And uh, again, she's sort of like um, slagging him off, but a little bit behind his back to the camera saying the jobs I have to do for this man. I, at this point, I kind of felt that she was actually being quite ballsy to, to be talking to the camera about your boss like that. I felt like, okay, it's, it's not going to last for her very long. I had the thought but a different scene that made me really think that thinking actually if she's saying that to the camera she must be knowing that her time's up and this is going to be the end for her very shortly because she's just basically saying look look what this guy is making me do she's trying to paint him as the villain here she's looking at him saying this guy's just making me bring beers i'm just doing all these menial jobs and i'm working my socks off and uh, not getting any reward and instead i'm just going to be thrown thrown to the walls essentially but, but but do you guys have an issue with him asking her to get a beer just a yes or no no, I I didn't I I didn't read it that way at all. Um, I I thought that she was just facilitating on the day. I've just... Nick, do you have an issue with the beer, the, like him making that sort of request? I didn't think necessarily it was her job to do that sort of thing. She's not meant to be there to to fetch him beers and, and things like that. She's not his like personal PA who's meant to be working for him hand on foot. Um, so I, I almost thought it was a little bit inappropriate. Yes. 
But okay. at the end of the day, like her job is to facilitate the CEO on match day, that, that pre-match time that a CEO has. And he's, you can see he's trying to get in with the fans and talk with people and, you know, make himself known and, you know, be a part of the club. And, you know, he doesn't have time to be going faffing about getting beers. There's only a certain amount of time before the game. And I think you're just use your staff as you can. Sure, she was only looking to give him a tour somewhere otherwise. And I, I don't know, I struggled to feel for her in that moment. I really thought that, you know, he just wanted his beer to just fit in and to be just part of the club and do his job. And she kind of was kicking back to have any sort of expansion of her role. I didn't, I didn't say it that way either, but uh, interesting. You can agree to disagree, I suppose. Um, but, yeah, into the stadium we go. Uh, Charlie looks encouraged. He says, we're going to harness this crowd. It's full. And in-game, you know, we, we have the first half. And really, this reminds me, because we I was watching Lord of the Rings over the weekend, showing, showing the other half, uh, finally, uh, the return of the king. And it struck me, these are basically just battle scenes, aren't they? Uh, that, that's literally all they are. Uh, they, you know, we can have a fight scene or something in that sort of movie. This is this is what these are. Uh, you've got five, ten minutes uh, of, of the cut and frost going on. And yeah, no, it's, as you said on the last pod, it's a great way to make time pass, but also really just hypnotic in some ways, isn't it, too? Well, we're not used to watching the game from those angles. So I think all of us are... I think you get a much greater appreciation of the ability of a player like Aidan McGeady to go past players when you watch how they move and also the way Josh Magic just finds himself in those positions and manages to swivel and get his shots off. I think it's really, I, I find it really interesting to watch football from that angle personally and also just the way it takes the narrative on and maybe, you know, it lacks the depths of a Lord of the Rings battle scenes, but sure, the, the goals and the saves and the penalties and whatnot are certainly big moments and kind of you know their importance in the overall narrative of the episode straight away i think if we're going to cover the the, the football section of the um this part of the episode here i think particularly with the the second um you know second half when there was that controversial goal that's um you know where it looked like a goal from the from the camera the roy carroll moment yeah, they decided they decided that it wasn't a goal. And you could see the intensity of the fans are shouting the abuse. And as you said, it's, it's not something we would really see properly if we were actually watching the match live, the way that they pan on the um, on the fans, you know, hurling insults, swearing. I think you know, particularly that scene did feel very much like, you know, like a proper battle and just you could kind of almost felt for the referee and the linesman because, you know, they were they were gonna be screwed if, either way if they declare and that's kind of you talk about the home advantage as well for clubs and that really brought in the home advantage i feel like if that was an away match they could have very easily made the opposite decision but they were almost too scared to declare it a goal after kind of you know the amount of abuse that they would be getting for the rest of that match if they had decided that was a goal um late um, later on if only there was a video assistant referee thing that they could employ to, to make those decisions to help those decisions um but you know before we go to the second half we've got to talk about half time and, and the ugly scene that the sort of unfolds of Oh yeah, well there is long staff. I'm not talking about him though. I'm talking about Charlie and Sophie. <laughs> so we're speaking to perhaps what Nick was hinting at. Um, yeah, she's kind of trying to read him the numbers, and uh, he's kind of basically says this. Okay, fucking tell them. I, I'm not. I'm not a corporation. I don't need to be treated like a fool. Okay, tell them to get a fucking number, and if it's two hundred out, it's okay. And I, I don't. I, I'm in two minds about this scene because I think he is a bit. He definitely is a little bit too forceful for me. It is in keeping with who he is, but it did, it does feel a bit too forceful for me and a bit disrespectful. And I, Nick, I've got to ask: is this, uh, is this moment your wife cracks and decides that she really didn't like him, or she already made that decision? No, she. So she actually quite liked him. She told me she liked him after the first episode, but after this episode, she was like, "Yeah, you know, she really hated him. She was kind of slagging him off right until the end, especially with with the final scene, which we'll cover later. But yeah, in this particular scene, this was this was the moment when she thought, actually, this this man is horrible. She thought he's so so horrible." Why is he being like this and making you know basically hurling abuse at the uh, the lady but obviously from his perspective and this is probably almost another nail in her coffin technically when she says if we get it we get it essentially is what she says about the numbers and you know and and charlie says well that's you know that's when he flips essentially when she says that because she's basically being very blase about um basically everything he's been working to for the last month or so has been about making this speech on the pitch and, and presenting the number to the crowd and you know to be told oh no we're not going to be able to get that number or we're not going to have that number you know that's that's 
the attitude he's not looking for. He just says, you know, I don't care if it's an exact number. I need a number because I'm about to do a presentation and I've been working my socks off to do this presentation. And so that's kind of why I kind of understand what, you know, what pushed him because he, he's about to try and, you know, do this speech essentially. And she's just saying, no, we're not ready. We can't do it. We can't deliver it. And, um, you know, as you, as you, as you said before, we went on there, it's this sort of JFDI, um, attitude, isn't it? You just get, just get the numbers. Don't care if it's accurate. doesn't matter. Deliver it, deliver it. Even if it's broken, deliver it kind of attitude that, uh, is a, you know, why he reacted in this way, I guess. And it is, it is an ugly disagreement, isn't it? And it's, it's an, un, it's unattractive and it's, it's horrible to, to watch, but you know, I guess he's, it again boils down to that point I said earlier about, he's not here to make friends. He's here to deliver results. And this is the result he wants to deliver to all the people that he brought, um, that he brought to the game. Okay. They've been working towards this for well over a month, as you alluded to there, Nick, and she's obviously seeing him all the time. And she initially thought that his, you know, 38, 39,000 might be possible, but 40,000, not a cat in hell's chance. And then she comes over in attendance figures and like, sure enough, like she doesn't have them and she knows exactly what he's looking for. She even seems to recognize that, you know, her job, her one job really in this day is to deliver these halftime figures to him. And, she doesn't have them. And then, of course, as you say, the, if we get it, we get it kind of thing. And it's just like, no, like that isn't good enough. Like you need the numbers. And I think she recognizes that at the same time. And that's what's so frustrating about that scene to me is that she does seem to understand that these numbers are the key thing for Charlie, that he delivers it on the pitch. They announce their record crowd. It doesn't, as you say, the accuracy of it doesn't really matter. And you're corroborating the home numbers, what they're doing. You know, it's like we're, we're doing the statistics for an attack on some tunnel in World of Warcraft or something. It's like, just, just give us the bloody numbers, you know? And so, I, I, again, like, I, I actually feel with, I'm with Charlie on this one, that she just doesn't get the big picture. Obviously, it's distasteful how he goes about it and the communication could be better, but that's a constant theme with Charlie. I think you often find uh, at work that you'll have people who are details people and people who are big picture people. And you'll find that often the details people and the big picture people can rub off badly on one another just because you have scenes like this where in the scenario that Nick's described in the scene we've just seen. Um, if you're a big picture person like me, you're kind of saying, well, as long as it's kind of the story is broadly correct, I'm, I'm not really too bothered whether it's 0.1, 0.2% off. Whereas you have somebody else who'd be up you know, checking the data all night for the presentation, like running for everything to make sure it's all bang on. Whereas I'll be more kind of like, okay, as long as it all kind of hangs together and um, all the data is correct as far as we know, um, I, I'm not going to be kind of quibbling over 0.1, 0.2% or something like that, some little difference in things. And uh, it's interesting how people see things differently in the workplace or how people kind of, uh, there's like a, a, I guess it's, it's like satisfying versus min-max. Like if you're maximized, you want everything to be like perfect. Whereas if you're satisfied, you're kind of more, more like, a, yeah, that'll do sort of thing. And, I think in this case, you definitely see that kind of writ large with the two, two people because the stag says, I, I think that it's perfectly obvious what he wants. And she's been faffing around a little bit. <laughs> Whereas, uh, obviously, it doesn't really. Excuse. I don't know if he's hurting abuse at her, is what you said, Nick. I don't think he quite does that. I think it's it's not what he says, but how he says it, mm-hmm. um, which is probably the best way of describing that, which probably in in kind of the cold light of my watching it on my sofa that's a bit awkward but in the moment i can understand in the con in context why he would have been a little bit frustrated well like what i, what I presume we don't yeah. see as well is the communication that leads up to that where he's looking for the number and he's probably emphasized that this number is important she obviously like she comes to him first saying the words attendance figures she knew that they were important and it's, oh, it's just it's a frustrating watch yeah, I mean, I, um, perhaps I was wrong to say hurling abuse, but he's he's passionate, he's aggressive, um, cursing a lot as well, which perhaps is could be considered unprofessional um, in his treatment of her. So I think I can understand from my wife's perspective as well, particularly why she thought this was not the right way of treating someone, and it's, it's you know. It's horrible basically it's a horrible attitude but it might just a, it's just what you see a lot in business ultimately if you work in business for a long time this kind of thing is is relatively common so it's yep. it's kind of like you, you can look at it from an empathetic um scenario which my wife was doing or you could look at it from a purely business sense scenario and say you can emphasize with charlie from that from that angle 
Oh, certainly. Well, hold that thought because we reached the end of the episode. Um, uh, it's a narrow one nil win for Sunderland. The fan day is a huge success. And uh, we have a kind of a voiceover from Stuart um, to see us out. And what he says is, what matters is our team spirit, not ruining what we're trying to build. We all need to be together no matter what. Uh, but this is really harshly juxtaposed with a couple of scenes. One, Josh Madger slinking off into a side group because he was substituted early. And the other is Sophie Ashcroft being hugged as her belongings get packed in her car. She's seemingly been made redundant. So this kind of brings to an end the opposition we've kind of had running through this entire episode. And it looks like, uh, well, Sophie's been made redundant effectively for uh, however, I guess, how this has been shot is she's, the way they're making us think about it is that she's been made redundant by Charlie for um, from her job, I suppose. And uh, is that fair, do we think? How do we feel about this? The juxtaposition there between Madger and, and Sophie Ashcroft is, is very interesting, as, you, as I said earlier, with Stuart talking about, you know, if you're not with us, you're against us. And, and that talking about the team as well as the, the playing staff and the non-playing staff. And as I said, perhaps he should be treating them slightly differently. I'm, I'm, obviously, I am going to be sympathetic to her. I mean, we're only looking at it from, and it's worth highlighting, we're only looking at it from an angle of about six to seven different scenes that we've been presented with by the producers of the show. So we, we don't know the full picture here. We can't really say, oh, she, she deserved to be fired. They deserved to get rid of her because she was, you know, had a poor attitude, etc. Or, um, oh, you know, she was bad at her job. Or, oh, you know, they're really harsh to get rid of her. Because, you know, this is, as I said, I can't, I can't really give a verdict on whether it was right or not. But ultimately, we know that they were looking to cut costs within this organisation. The club was hemorrhaging money. This marketing department probably had too many people in it in the first place. So it might not have just been a personal clash. It was probably um, fundamentally a, a business decision that this team was flushed with resource and had too many people um they weren't they weren't adding value to money for the company either because the you know they, as as we saw you know even charlie was coming up with the ideas none of them came up with this idea none of them drove this idea none of them you know ran with it it was all him doing all the hard work trying to push it push it forward and and it was a successful idea ultimately with you know very successful with the forty six thousand plus um attendance records but you know that was all charlie's hard work wasn't it let's be honest we, we could see that he he drove the entire initiative and it didn't come from the staff so in that sense it's you kind of understand why they came to the decision that they came to the decision but you know again on the other side you have to sympathize for the lady because she's lost a job it's a horrible situation to be in and um you could say it's pretty unfair as well, potentially. I mean, she obviously was working very, very hard. And, and you know, she was clearly the go-to person on the day, running things within the team. So it's almost like a, she did come across like a bit of a fool guy when there's probably other people that might have been worse off, you know, doing her job more poorly than her. So she kind of was a bit of a fool guy, I guess. Now, certainly how it's presented in the episode, I feel. At the end of the day, and I, I think, Nick, you've captured an awful lot of this, the, it's a club that is hemorrhaging money. They've been very clear that they will. They have already made waves of redundancies and they've made it quite clear that they may need to do it again if they can't drive the revenue that they need to drive. Charlie is quite clear that he expects them to come up with the ideas to drive what he sees at the time as a stretch goal of 40,000 ticket sales. Sophie and we don't know if she represents more than just you know her views really and when she says that you know not a cat in hell's chance that they're even going to beat 40,000 seats she seems to be dragging her heels in this and so like how they're running the business seems fair in that sense maybe the communication could be better as we've said a million times but at the same time you have to feel sympathy for Sophie who's gone through the traumatic experience of losing her job here and we don't know if other people have lost their jobs here but she was the one who was just happy to do the camera stuff and has ultimately ended up being the focus of this for all of us who watched it yeah certainly I think the way it was shot I think if you were just watching it binging your way through I think that the way it is shot like is just you know you should you feel like you you could probably be very very sympathetic of her um and i think her story arc and i know i'm really sorry i know it's a real person but in this context i'm going to treat her like a member of the dramatic persona it's a really interesting story arc because she's a young mother with heart and you know you could, as anthony's just said you know you, you you definitely have to feel sympathy for her as a person um but from a kind of a business slash you know, management consultant perspective you can perhaps also see why that decision's been made. Like, 
obviously there could have been loads and loads of footage that, that they didn't use and lots of different things and they've chosen the order who what scenes to put in how to edit it how to put the story together but how they presented it was that she was a naysayer she wasn't on board with the new business ideals or direction and maybe she was kind of the epitome, the embodiment of the old regime sort of sluggishness. This sort of, you know, send the check to the owner. That's kind of who she was. And you know, as Anthony's reminded us, she did say there wasn't a cat in hell chance that 40k target, which was absolutely smashed. So, you know, there is obviously the personal sympathy that a young mum has just lost her job. But from the business perspective, which is harsher, not particularly empathetic, perhaps it is the right thing to do for the business. There's loads of other factors, of course, that Nick's alluded to that we don't know. Um, but even though the sympathy that in the way the episode shot, I think the sympathy would lie with Sophie. I think when you take a step back and thinking about it, think about it a little bit, you can kind of see the business's case. If if it's not Charlie's case, the business's case for her, not, not uh, for her being let go. Right. One thing that's quite interesting is that after this has been, this, uh, this whole series was published, the, one of the producers of Sunderland till I die was interviewed and asked about whether Sophie's sacking was a result of the falling out between uh, her and Charlie. And that producer even asked, like, did they have a falling out? Kind of getting at the idea that, to quote him, look, I think that Stuart and Charlie came in with a remit to make changes, drastic changes across the board. Certain people bought into that vision and certain people maybe didn't. They weren't making baby step changes, let's put it that way. And I think either you got on board or you moved on. And you know, there are probably a lot of people who are similar in that respect. Yeah, so basically they way, the way they shot it was basically fateful. That's basically a long-winded way of saying yes. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, uh, yeah no, very interesting. I'm glad to hear that we're along the right lines. I also um, did a quick Google search to see what she'd been up to. And yeah, apparently um, she started um, a role in March 2019 and left her role um, of corporate communication managers at the same time. So looks like perhaps it wasn't even potentially a redundancy she already had a new job lined up which is perhaps why she was being so critical on the camera because she knew she was leaving and had um, a new job lined up um it's apparently she's now working as the head of marketing and communications at the foundation of light sunderland afc's new charity according to an article on hitc so um yeah perhaps um, everything worked out for her in the end that wasn't as negative as um, it was portrayed in the documentary Oh, it's interesting that you can slag off your boss who still ultimately owns the whole thing and uh, get a job still in the same organisation. What do you know? Maybe we should take some notes about that and Nick Anthony and uh, yeah, no, maybe let's not do that. But yeah, interesting. Cool. All right. Do we like this episode, guys? I personally really enjoyed it. I thought uh, I really like every time we get a glimpse into the the upper echelons of the club and how it works and the decisions they make and the analysis they do in advance. And maybe even you know how communication goes on and how they achieve goals or miss their goals in this case achieve their goals and this is definitely I think the high point in the season for Sunderland everything's going well they're second in the championship they've smashed this record and hit 46,000 sales everyone's smiling Maja is still at the club everything's going well and I think they capture it but also maybe foreshadow the storm the storm clouds that are gathering quite well too yeah, I would have to say this has probably been my favourite episode so far of the series. I, I just really enjoyed just like all, all the business elements to it, like a little bit little bit nerdy of me to say that, but it, it was just so focused on what was going on within the business and, you know, the money and how to manage it and the marketing elements and stuff like that. I found that really, really interesting. I think if you're like a bit of a hardcore football fan, you might not enjoy it if, you, if you're just kind of just into watching the game and seeing them perform and see what happens on the pitch but it's not about what's happening on the pitch it's what's happening behind the scenes and yeah just kind of getting into the intrigue of it all and you know the opposing sides and, and really trying to because you know normally when I'm watching a tv show I kind of just I zone off a little bit because we're doing the pods it made me think a lot more about every single scene and every element and try and you know come up with my own views and arguments for both sides just I think really brought it home how, how good an episode this particular um, was yeah certainly it was the deep breath before the plunge there's still a gandalfism uh it definitely did feel like it was that moment where all the cast of characters are together but it was just that kind of fleeting moment before they're all kind of torn apart um 
and you're right, Nick, it was a bit like you know, Suits or something. They made all the office politics and machinations look like a medieval court drama. Um, I don't know. Um, it was almost like you know, West Wing or House of Cards or something in real life. It was, it was really interesting. And but, I mean, if you look at the, the bold facts of what you just watched, you basically just watched a load of office politics with a little bit of football in between. Uh, yeah, very interesting. And that kind of really highlights to me how important that little kind of throwaway Luco 9 bit was just to break it up. Otherwise, it would have just been a load of, load of men and women in an office all talking about business stuff the whole episode. And But they made it enjoyable, which is absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah, be interested to see where it goes from here. Uh, the next episode is playing poker. And yeah, there's an absolutely fantastic moment in that. And I really can't wait to do this uh, for that episode. Uh, but in the meantime, I think that's basically it for this one. Just to say we are, of course, who got the assist. You'll find our Twitter at WGTA underscore FPL. You'll find Nick at WGTA underscore Nick. And you'll find me, FPL Stag, at FPL Stag. We're also on Instagram now at WGTA dot FPL. Yep, and we'll be back next week to talk about Season 2, Episode 4, Playing Poker. So, yeah, haven't watched it yet. Tom and Stag have, so I'm very much looking forward to seeing what happens after um, particularly that scene you just alluded to, Tom. Yeah, absolutely. Golden moment, I think. think That that is probably the moment in Sunderland Side Eye, that one. But yeah, uh, stay safe. Uh, I hope this assists you watching something until I die better. Um, and dear God, I can't wait until FPL is back. But in the meantime, uh, speak to you next week uh, to talk about something inside I once more. See you then. Bye. Oh, it's a goal. Who got the assist? Who got the assist? Sports Social Podcast Network.